Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And, and our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. No, 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 Hello and welcome to the Happiness Is podcast with me, your host Bruce Aitchison from Happiness Is Egg Shaped. And today I've got kind of a blast from the past, but now someone that is sparkling in the future. I've known this man for a very, very long time. We went to school together and then as we leave school, we actually ended up at the same uni doing different things. And then I watched his career go in all sorts of different directions, representing Scotland at Sevens and on the Sevens circuit. We then bumped into each other in Hong Kong once or twice, and we'll probably keep those stories to a minimum. And now he finds himself in New Zealand doing a job in a place that Scotsman really shouldn't get to, I don't think. But he's very, very highly regarded. He's just launched his new venture that I'm sure we will talk a lot about, being endorsed by so many big names. Ardi Savia, Dane Coles, they are all over it. And they all reckon that this man plays a big, big part in their performance. He is all about performance. He is all about getting the best out of himself and out of others. I'm absolutely delighted that he's been able to give me some time. I'm in Scotland. He's in New Zealand. Our accents might dip back into the good old days of gala. Both our accents have changed for various different reasons that we might have a little giggle about too. So with any any further ado, welcome the one and the only Mr. David Gray. Hello, sir. Thanks very much, Itchy. What, what an intro. Oh, I just, um, I'm still can't believe it when I see things. Uh, speak to Tony Walker, you speak to Richie Gray, changing the world, and now we've got you out in New Zealand doing great things. How, how, how's life? Very good, thanks, mate. I'm uh, just over here in Wellington, New Zealand. Been here uh, since 2006, so life's good. It's, um, 
yeah, just chipping away at a few things and staying busy and uh, enjoying life. So it's all good, mate. So your current role is with the Hurricanes. What is it you get up to there? So uh, I'll look after the s side of things at the Canes. So I've um, been there since 2009. So I've had a good stint um, with the Cane lad, Canes lads. And so just really looking after all the physical prep. And uh, there's, there's two or three of us in the, the strength and conditioning department. I changed my role slightly about a year, or maybe just under a year ago. So for about 10 years, I was... Um, classed as the head of physical performance but as we'll probably come on to in this conversation later on I took a little bit of a step back in my role I work with the Canes now in a 0 .6, 0 0.6 capacity and I've been developing some other business interests on the side so I've kind of gone from heading up the programme um, being involved in you know lots of meetings and planning and strategy which was really cool but you know you sort of at times get a bit uh, stale from that so Drop back and a bit more on the tools again, which is cool. Back and a bit more coaching and, um, you know, working on the grass with the players and not having those extra responsibilities of being at every meeting, and um, which ties up time pretty quickly. So, um, yeah, that keeps me, keeps me busy sort of day to day, really. It's one of those weird things that the better you get at something and the higher you go in it, actually, the less you do the thing you were good at. 100%. I often think kind of like your, your line of work in teaching that the best teachers always, well, they seem to get promoted and before you know it, they're a, a principal and they're never actually teaching. And um, I think it's a little bit like that in, in rugby, you know, whether you're a coach and you, you might start off as an attack coach or maybe you start as a skills coach and you go to attack and you're on the grass and you're working with players and you do, do a good job and all of a sudden you're a head coach. And there's more relationships with the CEO, the board, sponsors, media duties, overseeing the program, you know, managing staff. And that takes up a lot of your time and you actually end up coaching less. And it's not quite to the same degree I found in, in my role, you know, moving through the sort of strength and conditioning side of things. But certainly um, there is demands outside just the gym, the grass, um, that, that take time and effort to do a good job. And, um, it's got it's got lots of lots of cool things about it, um, but just after ten years of that, um, I was quite keen just to freshen up and just get back on the tools really, and um, give me time to explore some other things that I'm interested in as well. I love it. Get back on the tools. Yeah, you, know, you you're like me. You grew up uh, probably waking up early on Saturday morning to try and watch Super Rugby, and then we would. Talk about training. Oh, I saw this move. I saw them do this. Have you seen Umanga? Have you seen? And now you, or not now, but you found yourself there. Did, were you pinching yourself, or was it just that this is just the next step for me? Oh yeah, at the start it was it was surreal, and um, a genuinely sort of similar situation. I remember Saturday mornings, sort of Sky TV back in the day. We'd often just show one Super Rugby game a week. And sometimes I remember flicking that on on a Saturday morning. It might be something like the Reds versus the Chiefs, and I kind of like wasn't really that interested. This would probably be like, like late nineties, you know. And then one week you might flick on, and it was Hurricanes, Blues, or whatever. And it was like, oh, the, the Hurricanes were for some reason they were my team. I don't know why. I, it was probably the players they had, you know, the, the Cullens, the Lumos, the Umangas. Um, so I kind of was at, at home in Gala. I'd never been to New Zealand, and sort of supported the Hurricanes and then 
I came out to New Zealand with a mate of mine. We were in Wellington and uh, went to a few Hurricanes games and then came back to Scotland and so sort of was kind of following the Hurricanes. And then, um, you know, within probably six, seven, eight years of that, actually walking through the door to, to work there and walking in and you're actually working with, you know, Rodney Solialo and Andrew Hoare and Jason, you know, guys that were at All Blacks and big names in the Hurricanes. And um, you had to definitely to pinch myself a couple of times. And um, so it was, it was kind of surreal, but you just got to get the head down and work hard and respect and um, and the boys trust. And then you're, you're away and you start making a really positive influence on them as well. I, I would imagine you've already named them. They're not going to suffer fools. If if you if you weren't good at what you did, if you were all talking no action, they're not going to get better. They're not going to buy into what you're doing. How do you get somebody, you know, big names, how did you get them on site? How did you gain their trust? Yeah, well, I think what you've touched on there is the key thing really is building that trust. And you can do that in different ways. But looking to establish that relationship's key. If I, if I walk into the gym and I just tell, you know, let's say it's Conrad Smith, you need to do this. You know, as a guy who's played 100 games for the Hurricanes and 50 All Black tests, he's probably got to go, who the hell are you, you know? But if you build trust and you try and um, have that relationship where you're demonstrating that you're almost like a resource, you're supporting their development, then players will they'll come to you and... And it doesn't take long if you start working closer with one player and you do a good job. Word, word gets around the change room pretty quickly. Like, this guy's knows what he's talking about. And I think Kiwis are, as a general, they're not, um, they're more doers than talkers. So they, they respect people that, if you get in there and work hard, most New Zealanders will, will love that and they'll give you a chance. But they'll see through the guy who comes in and talks talks a good game but doesn't do any of the work, you know. So it's uh, it was a real learning experience. You know, I've learned things over the whole 12 years that uh, I've been involved with this this team and there's there's cultural differences. There's, there's you know, there's players from all, all different uh, walks of life, from different backgrounds. you got to start to understand how they impact their personality and how they see you and how that might impact communication and the feedback that they give you. But... Ultimately, I think just like anything, if you if you do a good job and you're, you the player understands that you're there to try and help them fulfil what they're trying to achieve, it's not it's not necessarily about me. I don't go in the field and have to play the game. I'm I'm just a facilitator to allow them to get better. And as soon as you get that type of relationship, um, I, I think that's that's cool. That's the key really to any any development is is that really. There's there's two things in there. One is ego. So you've kind of said you're there to support them. So what does that do for your ego? Yeah, well, I'm really driven by impact. So I'm not um, – I don't need to feel valued by being on the back pages of the newspaper or having loads of TV coverage. I'm motivated by feeling like – I'm getting recognition from the people you're working with that you're having a really positive impact. So for me, that's that's what pumps my tires up. That's kind of like my ego getting stimulated. And everyone's different. Um, you know, I could 
it's been funny about like the last few days since I've sort of started the business. I've been on social media a bit more, trying to like promote it. And my wife Janine's been helping me. I'd, I'd I'd no idea how to use Instagram. You know, I've been on Twitter for years, and I think I had like one tweet and sent. And you know, I had a Facebook page that's got a photo on it from two thousand and two or something like. That. You know, I just don't. I'm not a big self promoter. I don't really need that. I'm sort of quite internally driven, and I can go home at night and think, well, today I did do my best. I've tried to give my best, and um, you know, if it's good enough for people, that's good enough. If it's not, it's not. But does give me that sort of self-satisfaction as well so so the the second bit to it is there's an image especially well probably anybody looking at New Zealand it's rose tinted specs New Zealand's the best they've got the best players they've got the best resources they've got and anybody who's been and and you're in it that's not necessarily true in in every aspect but one of the points is oh but you've got the best players but sometimes the best players are not the ones who want to work hard. So you must have had cases of players who had all the, you know, physical skill, the physical attributes, but there was just something missing. You don't have to name a name, but is there somebody that you look at and think, my input to that, I, I got that kid, I got that guy, and that was that then led to them being able to reach their potential? Yeah, like I, I certainly, um, I certainly think so. Like, there's some good examples of players I've worked with who I feel, and they've maybe said to me in, in, in private around the impact I've had on, on their career. And, and it's not just me. There's lots of people that have helped them, not only in terms of S and C or coaching, but in their life in general as well. And like, I think a, a really good example and. I think he'd be happy with me sharing is Nani Lumapi, who was with us for a few years. I had a really great relationship with Nani. And when he came down to the Hurricanes, he joined us from the Warriors and he was had a, it was his second ACL injury. So he'd coming off the back of this, you know, quite a quite a significant injury. And he was um probably wasn't in the prime shape that he that he knew he could be or wanted to be. And I remember, and again, there's lots of people supporting the guy, so I'm not not claiming the credit for it but I remember sort of sitting down with him and we we're talking about his his personal vision and his drivers and his motivators and and he you know I'm not going to say what they were but they were quite emotional you know they were you could tell it was from the heart and it was almost as soon as as soon as you spend a bit of time and recognize that flicks a switch on him and it flicks a switch on me and from that point on we still had a really great relationship but just keep asking the guy um, are we on track here? Are we doing this? And before you know it, there's an athlete who has dropped seven kgs body weight, who's doing extras in his own time, who buys his own walk bike to have in his house for his days off. Um, you know, cleans up his nutrition. He's in early doing his rehab and stretching, and starts to become this professional. And and you know, and you saw his career really shift over a period of three or four years, and um, so I think examples like that are, are really powerful and how you can work with players. And it's not necessarily about the strength and conditioning. It's not necessarily about the weights program you've written. It's kind of going back to that first point. It's about the relationship and having mutual understanding on what the, what the player wants to achieve and why he wants to achieve it. And you're almost just a facilitator giving him the physical stimulus to help him attain his dream, really. So 
Um, now Nans has moved on to he's off in France now, and I hope he hope he continues to to push himself because he's got some great aspirations in the game, and he's a he's a phenomenal man on and off the field, and um, so it's it's really special when you see people. Like that's again that's quite rewarding for me. It's not something that you need to shout from the rooftops or have a TV camera in your face. It's just you go home and you think, man, I've I've hopefully made a little impact in that guy's life and in a positive way. Class, love it. Looking back, could you have seen what the job actually was? Did you think the job was, I'm going to get him to lift that and run that, but actually it was personality, it was relationships, it was social skills? Definitely. That's been the biggest learning for me. You know, I've been sort of involved in strength and conditioning and, you know, probably since 2002, 2003, and it's a a bitsy way with younger players at Gala and Bits and Bobs and then obviously progressed through over the years more full-time. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Like The skills, the, there's lots of people know strength and conditioning better than me. So it's not... You have to have, you have, to have knowledge, you have to have understanding and you have to have the, the, the ability to, to write programmes and periodise and things like that. But that's not... That's not the difference. That's just the, the bread and butter. Like the difference is relationships, understanding people, um, how they're motivated. Um, you know, if you can, I always sort of think if you can get guys coming to work highly motivated and engaged in their development, it, it's almost irrelevant if your weights program is five sets of three, six sets of two, five sets of five. It doesn't really matter if that guy is engaged motivated he's got to get under that bar and he's got to rip into whatever you've given him and he's got to adapt because of that now potentially you know maybe if you're working with an individual athlete at an olympic level the, the, the this real real fine granular detail of the programming might become the one percent difference you know when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of a second between winning and losing but in rugby that 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 little fine margin is is not as is not as fine so you don't need to you need to know what you're doing but yeah i totally agree like if you can develop a skill set around communicating well building relationships um, you're a long way to getting success so if you were to go back and write the degree program or you have an intern come in what what advice do you give them what what would be the thing you would point them towards yeah, I've been quite, uh, quite. Uh, we have interns every year, and it's, it's probably changed a bit over the years. Where at the start it was maybe a bit more around let's sit down and talk programming. Here's how we write the weights programs, and I, and I think there is. Don't get me wrong, that's like a key part. You got to know what you're doing. Don't get me wrong, but over the years and more lately, it's been in the standing in the gym with the intern, maybe asking them what you've seen there, and they might give you you know, something that they're seeing and it's saying, okay, how you got to now, how you got to communicate that with the player? How you got to tell him that? Is he wanting your feedback right now? Is it something for later? Is it something to put away and uh, talk to him later about? Have you, have you given him enough praise? Have you rewarded him for doing positive things enough times before you go in there and say, hey mate, on that, on that last cover clean, you uh, didn't get full hip extension. So a bit of a, a bit of a work on, a bit of a, something they've not done well, have you balanced that off with 
three, four, five occasions prior to that where you've given him positive feedback. So he's now really receptive to what you're saying. He's not just like, oh, there's there's David Gray again having a go at me about this. He talked to me yesterday about that as well. And so those softer skills, I think, are really crucial. And I've, uh, you know, I think it's, it comes a little bit maybe through your own maturity and time in the saddle and, and and finding out what works and doesn't work. But I certainly see some of the students coming through, they've got good theoretical understanding, um, but applying that in, in a way that people can relate to is probably the next step of the development. So try, try my best to sort of help them do that. So who, who helps you? Where do you get your feedback? Who's who's fine-tuning your skills, who's looking at you and supporting you, I would imagine there's probably more than one person involved in that. Yeah, um, I've got, um, I've done different things over the years. I'm really, really close to one of my colleagues, Dave Walrash, um, who we've worked together for a number of years. And we, we deliberately, we've got a really, really good relationship. We're good mates, but we deliberately um, challenge each other and what we're doing. So we see each other day in, day out. He sees me coaching, I see him coaching. He sees me presenting, I see him presenting. So we deliberately look at each other and try and give each other really uh, accurate solutions or, or, or feedback on how we can get better and we're conscious of that because you can be a little bit isolated. New Zealand's quite an isolated country and then professional sport, there's not a lot of it in Wellington. So you can become quite isolated and um, it's important that you continue on that journey of growth. So Dave's a Dave's a really really close um, influencer of mine. You know, I'm, I'm always asking for feedback, whether it's you know Nick, Nick Gill with All Blacks might come in for for a few days, asking him what he sees. If we have people who are passing through, um, might be visiting New Zealand, not in the current times, but previously, you know, visiting New Zealand, invite them in, ask them what they've seen. Um, obviously, we're going on courses. Um, but a lot of the things I'm looking at now are sort of more into communication, building connections, neuroscience, performance psychology, like wider than just the physical um, domain and talking to different people. Um, there's a guy I talked to the other day in Australia who's got a completely different background in the military, but he's into human performance. We talked to him for, you know, fairly regularly, but talked to him the other day for an hour, just saying, this is what I'm up to. How's that? compared to what you're doing, he's quite far into his PhD around performance under stress. So it's really interesting to talk to people who are looking at it from another angle and just thinking, you know, nobody knows it all. So if you can get better by speaking to somebody or, or whatever, um, I'm more than open to that. I, you know, I did a mentorship last year with a guy in the UK, Craig White. Um, so got alongside him. We think it was over three or four months we talked every second week helped me massively with my, my own personal growth, which has then made me a better coach at the back end of that. So hopefully it's helped the people I work with even more. So just always looking for ways to try and improve and, and, and get better, really. Class. Love it. Learning never stops. So you're, you're, on, you're only 0.65, is that right, with the Canes now? So you're more time on the turf and, and getting involved with the boys. So what happens the rest of the time? You've just launched your new venture. Yeah, yeah. So exciting. Um, it's been a bit of a work in progress. So I've been doing a bit of work in the background um, with delivery and building the business. So I've launched a new business called Flow State, which is uh, it's all around um, 
what a term human high performance. So it's a it's a business that targets individuals, teams, organizations that may be in sport, but just as well they could be out of sport. So anyone who's really interested in maximizing their human potential, whether that's of themselves, their staff, the team they're working with, key management in an organization, anyone who's interested in maximizing human potential, I'm trying to create a, a business that offers them coaching, mentorships, education, consultancy to help them achieve that. And it really looks at uh, areas that I'm passionate about. So how do we how do we go from preparation all the way through to performance? And at a human level, how can we set people up to perform uh, at their best when it matters the most, really? And we can strip that right the way back and um, look at things. For example, where do we or how do we develop motivation, grit, willpower, resilience? How does that link into vision, values, your behaviours? And then as we start to sort of work through that continuum, uh, how do we optimise performance? So again, this might not necessarily be in a sporting setting, but generally people have to perform in some domain. So that could be a student going into their exams. It could be somebody going for a job interview, their driving licence. It could be a big presentation. It could be public speaking. Could be uh, could be any number of things. It could be a, a policeman going into a kind of violent um, situation. How does he cope with that stress? So, how do we look at optimizing humans? So, looking at things like sleep, nutrition, physical status, regeneration, and then all the way through to uh, how do we optimize learning and skill acquisition? Whatever, whatever sort of domain or work sector you're in? Are we optimising how you're developing uh, on a human-to-human level? How are we communicating? So are we communicating effectively? Are we having influence? Are we having persuasion? Are we being authentic? How is our body language? How is our tone of voice? All those subtle skills that immediately create some of the things we talked about earlier around trust and relationships, they are fundamentally set up by how you communicate and then kind of right at the performance end of the spectrum how how do people go and perform in their performance domain whatever that may be and how do they really prepare for that in the long term and set set, set themselves up for success and then also strategies that maybe in the acute sense are required so if the door opens and you're invited in for your job interview and suddenly you're you know you're a bit stressed and panicky in that moment, have you got the tools and skill sets to bring your arousal levels back down and go and execute a performance? So when it really matters the most, you deliver your best. So the whole business is set up around around this uh, high, poten- uh, high performance in humans. And it's areas that I'm hugely passionate about. I think um, I have a really good understanding in these areas. And I'm also loving it because one of my big personal values is continued learning. So... I'm getting to go out and look at, you know, relatively complex and areas like neuroscience or performance psych, you know, and it's it's quite intimidating. Sometimes you you speak to people with a background in this, or you read something, or you listen to people talk about it. It's it's pretty complex, but I've started to think about it more as kind of like kids who do the drawings by numbers. You know, they start on one to two to three to four, and at the end of the day, they've 
I've got this beautiful picture and the more I kind of open my mind and learn, I'm starting to see really clearly the dots. So people always talk about having a, a vision, for example, but then when you look at the neuroscience around what drives motivation and pursuit of something, there's neurochemicals in your brain that are, are activated and released in the in the the process of pursuing something. So you start to go, well, if that's happening in your brain at a, a sort of neurobiological level, it makes quite a lot of sense to have a vision because you're naturally going to produce chemicals that are motivating to drive you towards your vision. And the more I've learned, the more fascinating it is. I've been connecting the dots. Um, and as I say, I'll be continuing to learn the whole time. And hopefully by the end of it, I can have this beautiful picture and help other people um, really to fulfill their potential and fulfill their dreams and their vision. Like what are they trying to achieve? And uh, I suppose a little bit like we talked about with the students coming straight to university, a lot of people have the technical tactical knowledge, but they don't necessarily have the other skill sets to support them maximizing those skills. So the, the whole purpose of flow state is to, to try and deliver all that. And, um, and help people whatever work domain they're in if it's a if it's a, a parent trying to be a better parent if it's a you know a mum whose dream it is to she might have maybe got three kids in her 40s and she's got a dream to run a 10k but she needs help to to get there that, that's her Olympic gold medal it's awesome how, how can I help you get there or it could be a business executive or it could be a student going for that job interview and so there's, there's huge, huge potential, I think, to um, to really make an, an impact. So I'm hugely excited, sort of officially launched it last week. As I say, I spent about three days trying to figure out how to do an Instagram post and uh, <laughs> eventually got there with, uh, with the support of the family and some other people. And um, But hopefully it'll be... Um, hopefully it'll be really cool and really impactful and motivate me and, and motivate other people as well. Uh, it, it looks awesome and I'm not sure you could have timed it any better because you've got Ardi Savia in the launch video and then about 24 hours later he's given that emotional speech as the All Blacks captain so surely that's already a rubber stamp this guy works oh exactly mate. that's the impact of flow state right there <laughs> all we need is 24 hours nah, it was awesome um, we actually filmed that uh, a while ago Ardi was outstanding obviously I've worked with Ardi for um you know, a good number of years since he was a young fella. And um, I spoke to him. I was actually a bit nervous speaking to him because I, I don't really like asking the boys for to do too yeah. much. But I kind of was like, it'd be really, it'd be a, it's, it's massive for, for a new brand, isn't it, to have somebody like that. And I spoke to Ari. He, he was awesome. We, we got an afternoon where we had a, a, a camera guy and he filmed some stuff. And um, he, he's made... Um, He's made the website and the photos we, we took uh, look outstanding, but it was out amazing for Ardy. You know, he's a busy man. He's got his own interests. He's got his own family, and um, you know he kindly gave up a an afternoon to help me out. And um, you know, good things come to good people. So he obviously Ian Foster saw he'd help me out and gave him the captain's armband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another one to add to your list. Tick exactly. got, got Ardy captaincy, and then. <laughs> You've got some great uh, other endorsements on there from outside of rugby. It's obviously important to you that you're not pigeonholed as just a rugby guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was really conscious. Like my, my my background mainly is in rugby, obviously, but the 
as I sort of said before, the, the business is it's wider than sport. It, it, so it's it's not rugby at all. I may have rugby clients. They may be from football, maybe basketball, male, female. But I'm, I'm deliberately trying to push out into new markets. I want to um, look at, for example, the education sector. Look at look at corporates, and and it's not it's not to uh, I'm, I'm not driven. You know, if people thinking, oh, the corporate that's where the money is. It's not it's not really what I'm after at all. It's it's the impact, and I, I just see people who um, when you talk to people around how they operate and how they function and. There's, there's missing links, I think, in a lot of a lot of different places. And although it's a, probably a relatively niche market, I'm targeting, and I, I don't think by any means it's it's for everyone. But for people who are driven to be their best and and want to fulfil their potential, um, that's what I'm trying to support them with. And right here, here's one for you. Sorry to interrupt, but here's one for you because this is something I'm passionate about, and it frustrates the hell out of me. You've just said it's not for everyone. But it absolutely is because it's learning. So what what is it? And it's especially bloody adults. What is it that makes it not for them? Well, I think it comes back to, we've mentioned the word ego already on this. And people, for some people, for some reason, can feel threatened, that they're comfortable where they are, or they're maybe they're more comfortable with the discomforts that they know about. So if you're not very happy in your job, or you're not very happy in a relationship, or you're not very happy where you physically appear, there's a, there's a discomfort to that, but it's a known discomfort. Whereas to push yourself to try and fulfill what you really want, that means you've got to lean into a discomfort that's an unknown discomfort. And the unknown is often what people are scared of. So it's easier to live your life and just suck up the discomfort that you know is going to happen, the pain that you're in, not necessarily a physical pain, but it could be a psychological pain. It's easier to do that than it is to actually come out of that hole and try and push forward. And I, I think there's, um, uh, you know, I don't know, a lot of people are probably in that position. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's why I don't, don't think it is what I'm offering is for everyone. I, I agree with what you're saying, Itchy. Like the, the concept can apply to everyone, but not everyone's got to want. Not everyone's going to be a um, look at that and have, oh, that, that's for me. It's only got to be certain people, certain businesses, certain families, certain teams, and and for me that that's that's fine because I'm I'm really driven as well by I want to create a business where there is a sense of team and it's you and I working together to find the solution, and make um, the performance better. It's not me coming into a, a work environment for a day and delivering and getting paid for it, but thinking at the end of the day, I made absolutely no impact there. They just had some budget available for a speaker to come in. That's not, if I get the sense of that, that client's not for me either. I want people who are genuinely, genuinely chasing the fulfillment of their potential and, and I'll be there and support them and challenge them and try and inspire them to go and, uh, to go and fulfil that. Uh, thank you, and apologies for interrupting, but it is, it, it, you're right, the concept's for everyone, but maybe the desire or the the motivation is is not there for everybody. Now, you can't have everything at the beginning. You can't, you can't leave uni and have everything you've got. Is there, uh, the, the more I've done these podcasts and I speak to people, none of them could have predicted where they've got to. Now, <laughs> We've known each other for a long time. I can't imagine that when you left school, you would have had a clue that you were going to be sitting where you are just now talking about things you're talking about. I know I certainly couldn't have predicted I'm in a place I didn't even know existed for a start. So what what is it that's happened? Did you have a vision that was long-term or were you just dealing with the next thing in front of you? Yeah, when I was younger... I probably just dealt with things as they as they came along, and uh, but I do. It's interesting. I do remember I was sitting at on the dad's house years ago. I can't when I was. I might have been living at home, or it was just after uni or something. Mum and dad's place had kind of got their attic converted into a kind of office space. My dad was over there working on his computer, and I was doing something, and we we're just talking. And, and uh, he was like, have you, "Have you got a five year plan?" And I was like, "No idea what that is." I actually do remember sitting down, and I can't remember. It must have been, must have been back in the sevens days, I think, two thousand two, two thousand three, something like that. And I put, I want to be a full time strength conditioning coach and a professional. Uh, I probably put rugby team, and kind of wrote this thing down. And I don't know, if, I don't know if he class it as a vision or not, but within two or three years, that had actually what happened. And there was a bit of chance and people you know and things like that, but. More lately, as I've kind of matured and learned, learned more, I've definitely got um, much more investment into having my own personal vision, business vision, my values. And I've kind of, I feel like I've kind of lived the process without really knowing how I've lived it. And like, I think a real good example is back in my sevens days. And, um, you know, I sort of, as you know, I was just playing club rugby in Gala with, with your mates. And, um, you know, every Saturday night, you know, drinking and having a good time and training Tuesday, Thursday. And then kind of out the blue got 
asked to go and play seven, in the sevens. Oh, sorry, go and train with the sevens. So we used to go up to Murrayfield on a Wednesday night and have a run round. And then it started to get a little bit more serious and used to go down to Jen and train with Chico Woods down at down in the cinders were like uh, Scott, <laughs> Mark Lee and Clarky Laidlaw. And there's a little group of us. And we used to actually, we ended up training. We used to play club on a Saturday. We used to train on a Sunday morning hard, like old school, speed endurance, hundreds, 400s. This is on a Sunday morning. And we'd train again Monday night, train club Tuesday, train at Murrayfield on a Wednesday, train your club Thursday, probably Friday be off, play Saturday, go again. And, and it, it was funny because that sort of just started to change my behaviours and my, my habits. And then the next thing I knew in sort of 2002, you know, I like got the phone call from Clarkstar Roy, he was a manager at the time, and he was like, oh, Dave, you've been selected for the Scotland Sevens to go to Hong Kong. And so I was kind of like blown away. I was like, geez, this is unreal. I'd seen, I'd seen videos years ago from a real close family friend, Keith Anderson, that he'd taken a South team there. And, and uh, so next thing you know, you're kind of at Hong Kong, and I'm like, geez, lad, I don't know if I should be here. I'm just like a club guy from Gala. It's ridiculous, you know, and there's 30,000, you're playing New Zealand and stuff. It's like, oh, my God. But then... Over that four-year period, without probably knowing what I know now, my um, my whole—I'd like to think people have recognised this as well—but my whole mindset changed by the end of my four years involved with the Sevens, and, and, and people would disagree with this on a talent level. Don't get me wrong, but I genuinely believed I was the best player in the world in my position at Sevens, and I didn't have any doubt about that because I'd spent. I'd changed my lifestyle, my nutrition. I'd changed, you know, hardly drank any alcohol. I'd trained so hard. I'd done extra skills work. I'd started to believe in myself. And um, and I, I suppose I had, like, a vision. I used to think to myself, if I was a New Zealander, would I get picked in the New Zealand Sevens team? And that was, you know, in 2002, I'd probably been like, do not be stupid. You wouldn't even get invited to the training camp. Never mind. But by 2006, now obviously you never got to be able to know this. I genuinely believe that I would walk into that team. And when you talk about sort of vision, I don't know if it was deliberate, but I've sort of experienced it. You know, what happens? I didn't necessarily have a real clear vision, but I think I had ambition and a desire to do something. And to me, that's quite a nice little story of, um, of living it. And you could say the same around, you know, how do you get from you know, gala to the hurricanes, you know, like if you've sort of got a bit of a dream and a passion and you go hard and just take chances that come your way, you know, it can happen. So, um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a reflection. Really, that. But you, you, you take chances, but you, you make things as well. You mentioned it before about, you know, there's maybe a little bit of luck along the way, but that you obviously showed a huge amount of determination. Now you, took yourself out of comfort zone as as I did in a similar way and, and lots of guys where we're from did where you disappear for summer and you play rugby in New Zealand. Uh, you pack a bag because somebody knew somebody and said, oh yeah, we'll have them. So what was that journey like, that that experience like? Yeah, mate, that was really cool. So a good mate of mine, Greg Brown and I, we travelled over to New Zealand for about 12 months and uh, mate, we had a great time. We, we were just clueless. We, I remember we um, the day before we left, Greg's dad, Johnny, was like, have you guys got uh, he, visas? He, he definitely is clueless. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of like, have you boys got visas to get in? Like, oh, visas? Like, no idea. And then luckily you never needed one. So, you know, we got on the plane and the guy, the 
the guy was like, do you want some beers? And we're like, how much are they? And like, oh, it's free. So we're like, oh, sweet, let's just get into this, you know. And, uh, but we had a great time in New Zealand. It really took us out of comfort zone. Like we played, um, like I wasn't the greatest 15s player around, but, you know, it wasn't too bad. I was playing for Gala. Like we uh, we struggled to get a game in the second team at Petone in Wellington. The, the standard was phenomenal. There was about five or six games that season. The midfield for the Petone first team was Jason O'Halloran and Tana Umaga. It was unbelievable. That's, uh, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could accept being in the second team those weeks, you know. But um, maybe we had a great time. Like anything, you know, you just opened your opened your mind, you know, and you sort of move away from. I probably had a little bit of that small town mentality about me, you know. Maybe like the kind of big fish in the small pond, almost. You know, you sort of feel like you rule the town a wee bit. And coming back a different person, I met. My girlfriend at the time, my wife now, she came back over to Scotland and, um, you know, just have build new relationships and meet people and try new things. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a cool time. And Greg and I were here for about a year. He went back a couple of months early. I stayed on just to finish the rugby season. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And you almost swapped like for like. You went from a club in Scotland to a club in New Zealand. There's so many similarities between the two places. Uh, and club rugby is kind of club rugby, doesn't matter where you are. But what what did you see in New Zealand that sparked you? What did you see that you thought, actually, there's something here for me? Not necessarily New Zealand or rugby, but in yourself. Yeah, well, I came back with a lot more belief. I think there's 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 a lot of talent here, and it's competitive, and it's physical. And I think what I loved was coming somewhere where nobody knew you, and because you're from Scotland, nobody rated you. So you had to prove yourself. You know, you genuinely had to. I think even we might start in the third team, like you know, come down on Tuesday night and go over there and train with the thirds, and you're kind of like the thirds play for Gala. You know, should be in the first team, but. You just got to prove yourself and earn your stripes, um, start to build your networks. You know, you get stuck in with the boys, there's court sessions, the works, it's great times. And but the rugby's the rugby's certainly back then, you know, it was it was serious. There was a, genuinely there was a lot of good players, it was a different style of rugby, you know, the, the grounds, you know, you do get some wintry days, but generally the conditions favour moving the ball. Uh, teams want to play that way. Um the, you know, you, you've got some good players playing alongside you. I know guys like, um, young players like Ricky Flutie and that were floating around the club, Nunea Tialata. You know, guys that go on and have great careers there to start off, but, man, they have talent. Um, so I th- I'd recommend it to anyone. Get out, get out of your comfort zone and go and, go and learn and go and prove yourself. And then when I, when, I came, when I came back to Scotland, I felt I was a better player and, and probably a better person as well. I know... After that, when some Kiwi guys would arrive at Gala, I was much more welcoming to them. You know, I'd invite them around the house for dinner. Still got good mates like Tim Stack and Johnny Weston who came over and played at Gala and Melrose. And, um, you know, I probably wouldn't have done that, to be honest. If I'd never left Gala, I would have just been like, oh, they can fend for themselves. They'll be right and stick with my own little crew. But um, so I think it really matured me as a person and helped my rugby. and belief in myself and you know it um, just helps you develop I think so yeah it's a great great thing to look back on and good times yeah. being involved in grassroots in New Zealand has that helped when you've then picked up a kid that walks in the Canes gym or 
given you a greater understanding of where some of these guys have come from? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like New, New Zealand's still, our class New Zealand is still being quite rough and ready around the rugby scene. Like there's some, there's some pretty hard kids playing rugby that have come from some pretty hard backgrounds. And, um, you know, I remember, this is a few years ago now, I remember uh, we had this hurricane schools camp and uh, the parents get invited. I think there's like 50 kids invited. And the last day they cut it to 25 or 30 and the parents are there to see their kids or to take the other kids home that don't don't make it. And one of the kids never got selected. So his old man just threw him in the boot, the car, and he was driving for about four hours home. It wasn't like a shower. It wasn't like to sit in the car because they were to cut. So, you know, it's pretty ruthless. And um, <laughs> it's quite classic. But, you know, the that's kind of... It's not your typical New Zealand story, but it's not uncommon either. And players over here, they've had to work hard for what they get. They, they don't get much easy. And um, like, like we sort of said before, there's plenty of talent knocking around. So if you get a little bit above yourself or ease off a bit, somebody will literally come along and take their head off and step into your shoes. And um, so I think, you know, I haven't experienced a bit of club rugby. You know, I've lived rurally when I first came over to New Zealand, lived up in Taranaki, so that's a completely different, you know, a little bit like the borders, great people, I loved it, living up there, but it's different from living in a city like Wellington, so again, you start to see kind of like how the social dynamics, how the family situations um, might influence some of the kids, and obviously that's how you you learn more about them and try and have those conversations where it's not, not just centred around rugby, but actually try to find a way to relate to people and talk about your family and their family and their upbringing and your upbringing and what's common and what's different and have respect and really uh, sort of thrive on that. You know, that diversity is really cool and understanding some of the cultural uh, backgrounds that maybe um, something that's really highly valued in a Pacific Island community may not be something you say in Scotland might not be offensive, but it might be to somebody from Samoa, for example, or, um, how you conduct yourself if there's um, some traditional, maybe like a Maori haka. Um, you know, I've, I've had, to, had to do two or three of my time here and I've felt really uncomfortable inside doing them. But, for example, the advice I got was whatever you do, just go hard and show respect. And so you do that because you're like, I don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to devalue something that's hugely important to the culture in New Zealand just because I'm uncomfortable. So, um, yeah, I think just, you know, it helps all that sort of understanding and what you don't know, you try and find out. It all helps to to build relationships with players regardless of their background and, and where they come from and where they go. When when you were on the Seven Circuit, I love speaking to people on the Seven Circuit and it fascinates me. And having lived in Hong Kong, I, I kind of got a taste of it, but obviously not as a player, not as a coach. You were... The roadshow, it was in Hong Kong one week, it was in Singapore, it was in Dubai, it was in South Africa, it was in America, it was wherever, Canada. How did that help form, well, give you a breadth of experience, I would imagine? There's some people have spoken to said they only saw training ground in hotels, so they never experienced the culture. I know you got into some of the cultural activities <laughs> and some of the places. How, how did that help? And I'm also, I love hearing the stories about your best mate being a Simone physio or a player from America. So how did that help with the development of Davey as 
probably is the human. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll look back at my sevens days as some of the best times of my life. You know, I absolutely loved that period of my life. And I've got some really close mates that played a lot of rugby with. And again, it just sort of opened my eyes to to different people. And I won't name any names, but there was people, for example, that when I played for Gala before I was involved with the sevens, I thought certain players were idiots. I've never spoken to them in my life. Thought they were absolute idiots. We'd want to try and fight them at any opportunity, kind of. And then a few months later, best mates of them because they're actually like really decent guys, completely different backgrounds from me, different personalities, different road in different circles, but great, great men. So we obviously spend a lot of time together on the road. Um, you know, I think um, just growing as a person, like having to perform. At a high level, you know, multiple times per day. You know, often it was two day tournaments, so three games each day. How um, in the Scottish team at that time, you know, we like to think we went pretty well for our ability, but we had good results and we had bad results. And how you can park those up emotionally. So you know, you might you might have a great result and beat whoever Samoa at midday, but you're playing England at three thirty, so. You enjoy it for a few minutes, but then you're sort of recovering, and then you're starting your prep for the next game. And and on the, on the other side, you know, if you if you lose to Samoa at twelve thirty, well, you got to park that and get yourself ready to go because we've got England at three thirty. You can't dwell on it, so that certainly shaped a little bit. I, I'm I'm not really um, a big one around the kind of emotional roller coaster of defeats and wins. The only time that probably has gone out the window is when we lost the Super Rugby final. I was pretty down for a couple of weeks after that in 2015. Um, but that Simmons experience, um, yeah, I think just performing in different environments, having to, to front up when you're not maybe feeling, maybe you're a bit unwell. You know, maybe, you know, travelling, you get, you know, bad stomachs or whatever, but you just got to front up and deliver. Um, no point mourning about it. You know, pushing yourself hard through hard sessions. Can you, when you've got young blokes coming out of the team, can you welcome them in, but then put a training performance out there to show them this is the standard and you ain't getting in because you ain't good enough because this is the level. So you develop that kind of toughness, that uh, resilience, uh, you know, the ability to absorb wins and absorb defeats and carry on and then uh, hopefully have some good times in Hong Kong as well. And, Enjoy the local, uh, <laughs> local pub. Quite good. <laughs> is there? And again, one of the other things I've found is that the more I speak to people, they can remember maybe four, five, six tops of results in their life, but they can remember moments or people or feelings. Is there a moment from on the field in your sevens career that you think that was maybe that was flow state? Maybe that was, but. Was there a time where you just thought it, it probably can't get any better than this? And obviously you would only think that on reflection, but is there a memory that jumps to the front of your head? Yeah, I've got a couple of memories of... Um, we played England at Wellington Sevens. Could have been 2005, I think. They had a, they had a really good team around that era. They, they might have even won the World Cup before that. They had a really strong team. I remember we beat them and... I remember playing that game and um, 
scored a try and and, uh, and loved it and it felt almost it was a little bit like flow it, I can still remember now running a line and it felt like kind of in slow motion and punching through the line and then running around behind the posts and almost you could sort of still sort of see the that kind of like misty atmosphere you get in stadiums where there's lots of people and stuff going on and fireworks or whatever and that kind of smoky atmosphere and I can still remember later in the game Wally Brown doing this tackle uh, when he grabbed the guy by his fingertips clawed him down got up won the ball got a penalty and then Clarkie Laidlaw kicked the penalty actually kicked it to win the game uh, which is quite unusual but that would be like a moment on the field um, but outside that I don't um, I can still remember snippets of games, obviously, but what I remember really vividly, to be honest, is moments like in uh, Hong Kong. The, I think the stadium will still be the same. The where you line up to go in the field, that the tunnel kind of angles up the way. It's about maybe twenty or thirty meters, so you're sort of down a slightly lower level in this tunnel, but you can see the stands and um, some of the big games in Hong Kong under the floodlights. And I can still remember standing there with the team and this that feeling of I cannot there's a bit of there's obviously nerves but it's just that feeling of I cannot wait to get out there and um, so some of my most vivid memories are around the change rooms tunnels waiting to go out um, rather than in the moment and I think that's probably the emotional side of it you know they tend to say that emotion and relevance tags it in your brain and on the field, it's you know there's definitely chaos and you know, you're you're doing your thing, but slightly calmer environment just outside the stadium. You're about to go into that kind of performance arena. is um, it's pretty special, you know. And uh, if I could go back and sample that again, I'd be um, rip your hand off. At least it's pretty cool. Uh, I love it. Though that's for me the the bit I miss. The 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 plane was the plane, but it was the changing room. It was the bit where there was there was no cameras. You know, we we didn't have camera phones when we were in changing rooms as as players. And the feeling after a game, you know, talking about defeat. You know, that was where you saw boys sometimes at their absolute weakest point, but also sharing that victory. The, the changing room for me is the bit I, I miss the most. You still kind of get to be in there but not as a player. Has there been a moment as a as an SNC coach with the Canes where you've just thought this is this is the best place. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else on the planet other than here at this moment. Oh, you know, I've loved um, I, I still do. I still love working for the team. You know, I'm, I, I love the team and I'm passionate about it and I've been fortunate, you know, to to travel the world with the team, and you know, I've got great memories from our home stadium, Sky Stadium in Wellington. But memories, you know, you're not even playing, but you might just run out with the kicking tee, and you know, you give it to whatever Bodie Bodie Barrett or somebody a couple of years ago, and you might be in Cape Town or Argentina, and there's this kind of cauldron of atmosphere, you know, and you're sort of you're getting little little. Uh, little snippets of it because you're kind of out in the field but you don't have to take any hits it's quite nice you can just run back off in the tea again so it's actually the best in both worlds you're getting a little bit but it's different um i'm not sure if i could say it's it's ever matched the buzz of uh playing you know there's something special i think about the change room when you're actually going into battle and after it you know defeat or win you know there's something that kind of band of brothers almost but being 
SNC or being involved, you're, you're pretty close in behind that. So we're still lucky, you know, a lot of people would, wouldn't get that in, um, in their, maybe in their sporting career, probably might not sample that much. So to have sampled it as a player, both at Gala, you know, around when we won the Cup in 99, we won Melrose Simmons in 99, we won Division 2 over this sort of three or four weeks. It was a great period um, to then do similar sort of feelings on the Simmons circuit. And now for the last 10, 12 years, and even before that, you know, with when I worked with New Zealand Simmons and I worked with Taranaki, and, um, you know, you're in the change room, so you're, you're still getting those hits. It's, it's pretty, I'm pretty lucky, you know, I've had lots of change room experiences, but I don't know if anything quite, quite beats actually pulling uh, the jersey on and going out there. Class. We, we, we're almost out of time, but we I'll, I'll get in trouble of Hepi if we didn't speak about Gala. So, obviously, a Gala boy, Gala Academy, Gala Rugby Club. You've mentioned three massive highlights there. I can remember the clubhouse after you came back with a cup. Um, but Melrose Sevens, that squad, I think you even had to play in the qualifying rounds for that tournament, didn't you? So, what, what was that like? Oh, mate, that was a great day. Um, we, we were on just a roll at that point. We had a, we had a really strong team, you know, some good, really, really good players, some great players. And um, it was probably one of the few times, I think, around Gala Rugby where there was actually felt like Gala represented more than just – it re- almost represented the town. It was bigger than us, and it, and it represented your mates who might be playing for the YM or the Star. It didn't really matter. There was this kind of – Everyone was behind the team, and it helps when you're doing well. But we had a, we had success. I think we might have won, as I say, maybe got promotion one week, then one division two with a team that I think I think was probably strong enough to maybe win division one. It was a strong team. It was you know, that unbelievable. Was that that squad was unreal, yeah, phenomenal. And then I think the next week it might have been like a cup semi final. The next week might have been Melrose Seven. So we got there and. Yeah, we played, I think, from memory, we definitely played five games. I think we played the first game of the day um, against Stirling County. I remember I was hooking, and I'm sure Gordon Bullock was the Scotland hooker at the time, and he was, uh, he was playing. If we ever, whoever he played for, was it Stirling or Stumel or something? Um, so we played the first game, and then we just had this belief in the team, and we ended up playing the two visiting teams from South Africa in the semi and the final, and I still remember... Sort of like I'm, I've actually got there's another kind of moment I scored a try in one game and I remember running and pointing and all the all the Gala boys were sort of standing behind the post at the, the kind of town end of the green yards and but the winning was the winning the tournament itself was was obviously awesome it's a pretty prestigious tournament and I'm really proud to have done that but really looking back it was what it meant in the bigger picture you know there was those moments in the change room with the ten of us and I'm sure Happy would have been there and uh, helping out and. But then it was going to the club room and there was heaps of people there and it was going back to Gala and all, all your wider circle of mates are there, like guys like Big L and Squinty and people that were playing in the second team, but there was uh, members of the club. There was, you know, it was phenomenal. It was just a great time. And as you say, the club rooms were, were buzzing. I probably remember more about that than um, the actual five games over the tournament. But that sport, I think, is... is um, you know, what happens on the pitch is one thing, but, you know, if you create a little bit of, uh, I suppose, inspiration maybe in some ways and feel good for, for, for people and yourself, you know, that's kind of what it's all about. Really. That's the flow state, Davey, I reckon. The flow state, mate, right there. 
<laughs> Does MD in Wellington call you burger? Oh, just a few. I've told a few people, but they, uh, they always just forget. People just call me Davey. Or a couple of guys call me Wallace after William Wallace. And, <laughs> Most people still struggle with the accent. They don't know what I'm saying. And you get called uh, Derek, Devon, David. Know. It could be anything. Just just let it fly. So. Not many call me. People call me burger, but usually the Kiwi guys that we know over in Scotland. And how how nice is it when you bump into your mate Clark Laidlaw? Too, you doing unbelievably well in New Zealand representing the borders. Yeah, it's good times. Uh, so he was obviously with the Canes for a while, so we were hanging out every day. He lived just down the road from me. Uh, now he's now he's moved or went back to UK, and moved up to the Sevens, but in Tauranga. But I actually spent a lot of time with him over the last probably three months. I was helping him out a bit with our Olympic prep, which was really cool. Loved it. Um, he's got he's done a great job up there. The environment, the culture they've got at the Sevens is honestly it's it's first class, and um, so I was up there sort of doing a couple of days a week with them, and flying up to the mount, spending two days with them, coming back to Wellington, back to the Hurricanes, and go back up the next week. And then I had about three weeks of them in Townsville, so I hung out with Clarky uh, quite a lot. I'm I'm, I'm pleased that um, I like to think I've kept in better shape than though he's he's definitely. Uh, <laughs> He's definitely uh, had a tougher paper round than me, I think. He's, uh, uh, the stress of being a head coach. Oh, the stress of being a head coach. You always want to get into S&C, I reckon. It's too, too much stress in that head coach lark. But, mate, he's done a great job. I love catching up with him. Uh, my wife, Janine, and his wife, Karen, are really close. Our kids are really close. So we see them now and again. They come down, we go up there. and um, it's, it's really cool, you know. And I think also he would say the same. And, and having people that you know from Scotland without kind of being insular, it's quite nice. Um, people are in the same boat. You're quite a long way from home, and it's obviously a little bit challenging at the moment getting that, getting uh, international travel done. So it's nice to have mates that go back. You know, Clark and I spent a lot of time on the Seven Circuit together, and we're good mates, so I always uh, love catching up with the dude. Is he going to be a business partner in Flow State? Nah, I don't think he's got enough cash to buy in, has he? <laughs> we'll see he's got some expertise anyway so uh, if I can't answer the, the problems I've got a good network of people that I can uh, help people out with so uh, tap anyway, into him as a consultant yeah exactly <laughs> David I absolutely love speaking to you thank you so much at the end of this uh, I asked the guest to, to finish a sentence and I'm interested to see where this is going I did tee up a little bit but you've not really had a huge amount of time to think about it so David Gray the man of the canes the man in the flow state for you happiness is yeah you did stitch me up just tell me this question uh, 10 seconds before we started here um Oh, for me, happiness is just feeling like I've given my best every day. So whether that's as a husband, a dad, a coach, uh, a friend, if I kind of go to sleep at night and feel like I've tried my best, uh, that's happiness for me. I'm very impressed that you put husband first. Janine's going to be delighted with that. Well played. <laughs> well played. Well played. That, that, my friend, is flow state. <laughs> That's performance under pressure right there. <laughs> Class. David Gray, an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank you so much. All the best. I look forward to catching up with you somewhere at some point. Pleasure, mate. An absolute um, great catching up, mate. I'll see you next time I'm back over in Scotland. Cheers, David. Good man. Cheers, mate. 
Absolutely class. That man is in the flow state. Love speaking to him. Time has flown. That's over an hour and it feels like 10 minutes. Uh, just slip right back in and great to see good people. Uh, I think he said good things come to good people. Well, it strikes me that some good things are coming his way. If you've enjoyed it, you can catch us on Apple, Acast and Spotify. Leave us a review, tell your friends and hopefully you've enjoyed it. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. My name is Bruce Aitchison from the Happiness Is podcast and my happiness is egg-shaped. All the best. Stay safe. See you again. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and love's a circle with no end. Love is not a and he said happiness is egg-shaped. Wait, um, happiness is a egg-shaped and love's a circle with no end. 